Hello, and thanks for downloading episode four of This is US Sustainability from the US Sustainability Alliance. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and on this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the issue of water conservation. We'll be traveling from Wiener in Arkansas to the Central Valley of California to find out how some of America's farmers and producers are rising to the challenge of climate change and extreme weather by implementing water efficiency measures on their land. We have two excellent interviews coming up with rice farmer Scott Matthews, and then we'll hear from almond grower Christine Gempele. But before all that, I'm thrilled to welcome back to the podcast US Sustainability Alliance Executive Director David Green, who we spoke to, of course, in our first episode. David, we've covered family farms, animal welfare and technology in our first three shows. Why have you chosen to focus on water conservation this time around? Uh, Water is critical to farming, absolutely crop farming. Water and soil are the two main components. And with the increase in population, increase in urbanization, the threat of climate change, we're seeing more and more pressures on water. And for farmers, it's a question of how are they going to get enough water or moisture, as they often refer to, particularly in the Midwest, to produce the crops, both healthily and with this proper quality. Any reduction in water, be it through drought, is going to seriously impact their crops. And so why were you keen to hear from a a rice farmer and an almond grower in particular? Well, these are two crops that uh, do require quite a bit of water and both sectors, not just in the United States, but in other countries, come under quite a bit of criticism about the amount of water that's used. What I'd really be interested to hear is what the almond growers are doing to try and improve the efficiency of their water use and to meet some of these challenges. Okay, great. Well, let's hear the first of our two interviews then. Uh, Last week, I was joined online from Wiener in North East Arkansas by rice farmer Scott Matthews. And I started by asking him to give us a quick introduction to his farm and also to explain what he was growing there. I am from uh, Northeast Arkansas, and I'm from the Delta, where it's very flat, and we raise primarily rice on my particular type of soil, and our rotational crop is soybeans. How large is, is the farm, and how long have you, and I, th- I think your family was has been farming there for quite some time, haven't they? Yes, uh, I, actually, where I'm sitting today, we've been uh, roughly 120 years of agriculture right here. And um, at one time, we were a larger farmer by the standard of farming. And now then, we've almost become a small farmer because we own all of our own ground and everything. I have about 1,800 acres. And we rotate in rice and soybeans in a one-to-one rotation. For the benefit of, obviously, people listening, um, so they can't see our call that we're having on Zoom today, you're sat there in front of a great photo, which I'm assuming is your farm in the background. (laughs) Do you want to just describe, so listeners can picture it in their mind, sorry, in terms of what the farm looks like and how you're set up? Our farm is extremely flat. That's conducive to growing good rice. It was naturally flat. We made it flatter within precision level, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But my ground is it's a real tight dirt. It's uh, good for holding water, which is rice again. And if people that's familiar with soil types, it's a Henry silt loam, and uh, it's just a, a really light white dirt that's good for growing rice. There's almost no hills here. You know, a hill is a few inches here. It, it's extremely flat. Well, obviously, just picking up on the comment about water there, Scott, I mean, it leads nicely onto the focus of this podcast, which is water conservation. Now, 
your Twitter bio actually states that you are a promoter of conservation. And it also says, ask me about new conservation technologies. So that's exactly where I thought we'd start. What, what are you doing on your farm when it comes to conservation irrigation? And it, it'll be great to know how you got started on that. I grew up in the fertilizing chemical business. I just finished my 31st crop. And uh, when we got into the business, there's just always a lot of change. And you're always you're always looking for that, that margin of profit. How do I increase my bottom line? Originally, we started out with no-till, which is when you plant a crop in the existing crop without working the ground. And uh, we really had a lot of success with that in the early years. And we had success with that before I actually started no-tilling before they ever produced what was actually called a no-till grill. So we were really kind of fortunate or kind of lucky that that worked for us. And we learned some things from that. We, one of the things we learned was that when we no-tilled or planted on stale seed bed, since our ground was so tight and didn't have internal drainage, that we got extra use of our moisture, soil bank moisture, so to speak, than we did when we conventional tilled ground and planted a crop. So we was actually starting our conservation irrigation practices with no-till practices and didn't realize it till later on. Can you explain why then water efficiency is, is such an important issue in, in terms of what you're growing? Water does two things for a rice crop. After about eight weeks after you plant it, roughly, you put out a nitrogen shot. That is where almost all your yield comes from. Then you flood that as quickly as possible. And what that does is pushes that nitrogen down in the ground and it holds it. As long as you hold a flood on that, your nitrogen can't escape. The other thing that it does, the water does, is it suppresses weeds. That water acts as a barrier to keep the oxygen out of the soil and keeps the plants from germinating and becoming a problem at harvest or even getting docked at the mill for the product that you deliver. And what has happened in my 31 years, we, we went where I'm from, my location, we went to having good water to low water. What that means is our aquifer is depleting and we're now in what is called the critical groundwater areas. But even prior to being in the critical groundwater area, we we saw the need to conserve water. Rice is a semi-aquatic, and it, it requires a, a lot of water, which is around 30 inches of crop year, in some cases a little more, 38 inches per acre foot. And uh, there was a, a lot of water that was being run out of fields, just not good practices. But it really wasn't bad practices at the time because there was a lot of water and your sources for pumping was cheap. But as time went on, we saw this uh, a waste or a way to conserve money. So we started building reservoirs and pit recovery systems. So when we were irrigating rice or beans, this water that we used would dump into a tailwater recovery system. We put it in the reservoir and reuse this water again. And just over time, every year, we make changes to conserve either the soil or the water in some capacity. Can you talk through some of what those, uh, those other changes and, and other improvements have been over the time? Our number one crop is rice. Rice is what makes our living. And so our focus has been on rice. And I've talked about the naturally flat ground. Well, even though it was naturally flat, it still had to be flooded. So as innovations come along and technologies come along, 
we got to where we were taking ground and precision level. That's where it's mechanically level to a grade. What this allowed us to was not only to use less water in the rice growing system, but it, it, it allowed for a lot of new technologies to emerge as well. One of those new technologies I'll just go ahead and go into, once we precision leveled the ground and we saw how efficient our water became, and, and when you water a rice field, it's watered from the top to the bottom, and it's, it's a grade. And a standard grade, and what holds the water from one paddy to another is a levee. And a levee will usually have one or two gates, depending on the size of the field. And the, the gates is what controls the level of water in the paddy. So once we precision leveled these fields, we noticed that uh, we were still cascading a flood. That's where the flood goes from the top to the bottom. It goes through each field to the bottom. Well, if you happen to catch a rain or something, you would still run water out the bottom. You wasn't as fish as you could be. Well, it wasn't long that we started using poly tubing. It's called multi-inlet rice irrigation, and it runs along the edge of the fields. And it's a calibration problem. It's actually a math problem. That, that's a really interesting analogy, Scott. Can you just explain what you mean by that? I would say that years ago when I first started farming that each farm is kind of farmed a lot, and that's it. we got to a point where each field was its own piece of the puzzle. And now we have pieces of puzzle inside a field. And I want, I want to talk about that with this, how we arrive at this process. We take a field, and most of our fields are larger than in a lot of other places, you know. And, and what we do inside those fields is with the technology, we have GPS the actual ground that we're planting. So we know exact, almost exactly the acres inside each field that we plant. Well, that's the first step of an equation, of a math equation. The second thing we do is we take a flow meter, and that flow meter is attached to whatever water source that we're using to irrigate that particular crop, and it gives us a gallons uh, per minute flow. Well, we take those two things, and then the next thing we do is we plant the crop. It's usually drilled instead of planted. It's drilled, usually seven-and-a-half-inch spacing. We do that. We build the levees. The levees are on the contour or the plane or the grade of the field. And another step on this that we have implemented in this math equation is, especially most of our ground is precision level now in, in the rice country, but there's still some that's not. But what we've also figured out is, is when the initial precision level of these fields started, that they now then, it used to be on a laser, now it's on a satellite. Well, it's on a particular heading. And that heading is important to build in your levee because the longer the field, if that heading is off, it can'ts one way or another, and it will cause you to water more than you want to in a particular field. And, and let's say we measured the field. We measured the flow of the water. We built the levees. We put them on the correct headings if, if it's precision level. And then we used to manually measure the levee. In between the levees is called a paddy. And we used to measure that to get the, the correct acres for our math formula. Now then, in the last few years, we have started using a drone for this. And what the drone has done for us is not only does it get the acres even more exact, it also, at the same time, has the ability to shoot elevation. Now, you say, why is that important? Because you've already built your levees. It's important because after harvest, 
we will take these data points from this drone where he's actually measuring our field. We'll overlay it with our yield maps. If we find a spot in a field, even though it's been graded, that's not getting watered efficiently, we'll go back and correct that problem as soon as we possibly can to increase the overall yield of that field. And uh, that's just, just some of the things that we're doing now. And so um, given everything you've talked through there, how much water have you been able to save as a result of the technologies that you've now implemented? Uh, I mentioned 30 inches per acre foot, up to 40 inches. I will tell you without question that we've backed that down to 18 inches, you know, 40%. And I will think in some years, doing this the way that we do it, this absolute perfection is we can get, and it'll get better. But the, what we're doing now, we're able to, to, to utilize range more efficiently. We, we use that in our program. And every time we do that, we don't run out the bottom which, you know, we mentioned earlier, our tailwater recovery system has actually suffered a little bit because, you know, that was kind of the primitive way. We were using that water, but we were reusing it. Well, now then, we hardly ever run any water out. It's very rare that we run water out of a field during a growing season. And uh, that's been one of the big benefits. Now, before we finish, Scott, many listeners may not be aware, I, d I don't know, maybe they do, but as well as being a vital crop to, to you and me, rice also provides a home and nutrients for migrating water birds and, and plenty of other animals as well. Can you just talk us through some of the, the wildlife that, that visit your farm? Yes, they've just started showing up here in the last couple of weeks. You know, we're, we're in the Mississippi Flyway, for those that's familiar with the migratory routes of birds and everything and we have all the species of ducks and geese and i would call them shorebirds i don't know all their specific names but they visit our ground over the winter uh, they migrate through here go south and they come back and they stop back through here on their way but we have right now just an abundance of uh, white front geese or or you might call them speckle bellies and we ha literally have thousands of them visiting our, our our cut rice fields now and we're just now duck season comes in in two weeks week from saturday i think maybe something around that and we're just now starting to flood the migratory ducks are just now getting here the geese were a little bit in front of them and, and of course with all those migratory birds too you also get the red tail hawks that sit around the edge of the field and you also have more eagles now than ever before in my life. And they, and they sit around these fields picking, you know, the cripples or the, or the strays off and everything. So it's, it's really quite a show. You'll have to take some photos for your Twitter feed to share. I have some photos I could send you. That would be amazing. Listen, Scott, it's it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for all the detail that, that you've provided. It's going to be really, really interesting for, for all our listeners. But but for now, thank you for talking to This Is US Sustainability. Thanks once again to Scott Matthews. Now for our second interview, and this time I headed about 2,100 miles west to the Central Valley of California, uh, where I spoke online to almond farmer Christine Gempelay. And once again, I thought it would be good to start our conversation by getting Christine to quickly introduce her farm and the setup that she has there. Sure. And thanks for having me today. My name is Christine Gemperley and I farm almonds in the Central Valley of California with my brother. He's my business partner. We have two orchards, about 135 acres, and it's just two of us that do all the work here, except for a few days out of the year when we need extra help at harvest. 
I'm right in saying that, like a lot of the people that we're speaking to on the podcast, this is a you come from a farming family, is that right? Yeah, uh, I guess we go back probably hundreds of years, but not necessarily in the United States. My dad is an immigrant from Switzerland who came over when he was 27 in the mid 1960s and started a poultry and almond operation with his brother. And back in Switzerland, the family raised pigs and made Swiss cheese, very Swiss. Uh, and they still do that today. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, obviously, as I understand, uh, California produces, I think it's 80% of you know the world's supply of almonds. But what I'm keen to know is what makes the region so suited to almond growing? I like to say that in California, the stars are aligned here for almond growing. We have a Mediterranean climate, so we get all of our moisture during hopefully six months of the winter. And then the rest of the growing season, we don't see any rain at all. So because of that, we're able to raise these trees with the right temperature and they don't have a lot of disease pressure that rains would bring like fungal and bacterial diseases. And we have a great supply normally of water in the mountains that we have a great system to bring water to different parts of the valley and some of the most fertile soils on the planet. Just picking up on on that comment about the water, I mean, obviously this episode, we're focusing on water conservation. Why is that so important for you? Are almonds any thirstier than any other crop? They actually aren't, you know, contrary to what we've been told by the media. The almond tree probably consumes about as much water as any other tree crop, say an olive or a peach or a prune. The thing is, when you look at an almond, you see this tiny little dense product, you know, this it's very small. And a lot of people don't take into consideration that there is a hole on the outside of the almond that actually we don't eat. And that's part of the water consumption. However, it's not wasted. Uh, we actually use it in the dairy business and it helps dairy farmers actually keep their water footprint down because they are consuming our byproduct. And so what, what about, I mean, in terms of like the current climate and and obviously i mean we're recording this at a time when there's lots of conversations going on around cop 26 and looking at, at you know climate change in particular uh, how does that impact in terms of what you're growing well it it has a huge impact on us climate change is real we've moved into this pattern of weather where we're seeing either feast or famine so we could have a year with 200% of normal rain and then it could be followed by three years of drought conditions. And so really our biggest dilemma here in California is how do we harness the rain when we get it? And that's where we really need to see some major changes. Our system was designed for Sierra snowmelt that melted gradually and filled our reservoirs. And we just don't have that kind of climate anymore. You know, the weather we see is just like huge storms, like one that came through uh, two weeks ago. And some of the cities in California had their highest daily rainfall records ever. And we need to capture that when it comes. So that's part of our challenge going forward. So, so what sort of practices have you put in place then to be able to conserve that water on the farm? Some of those practices need to be taken on by the state. We're talking about reservoirs, but we've done a lot of things here on our property in order to conserve water because we have the ability, if we don't use all our water in one of our water districts where our orchard is, we have the ability to save that water and use it the following year. 
I mean, I have about five practices that have really made a huge difference. One of the practices that we use is strategic irrigation. So what we're doing is we're putting water on only when the tree needs it and as much as it needs it. So we're using a lot of uh, sensoring data from evapotranspiration rates to um, soil moisture monitoring. And we're also looking at the development of the almond on the tree at any particular point in time. So exactly what the tree needs. Another thing we are using is very efficient irrigation equipment. When I say that, I mean the hardware, the stuff that's in the field. Some people are using subsurface irrigation drip lines so that they're eliminating uh, the evaporation of water that you might see, say, through flood irrigation or through some micro sprinklers. I mean, that being said, micro sprinklers are still a very efficient way to you know, deliver water to your trees. The newest practice is whole orchard recycling, where we take a whole orchard at the end of its life cycle, we grind the whole thing up, and we turn it back into the ground. And we have found through the research funded by the Almond Board that it can increase the water holding capacity of the soil by up to 20%. And that's in addition to all the nutrient that it brings to that soil. I'm also cover cropping, which... Actually, you would think that cover cropping would take water away from your crop, but actually it doesn't because what it's doing is building the soil and helping with that water retention. And it creates greater humidity in the orchard as well. Not humidity that harms the crop, but humidity that really keeps those evaporation rates down. And the last thing, and this is really cool, in one of my water districts, we're actually using recycled municipal water. So you know how they have farm to fork? Well, we have potty to plate. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned about the life cycle. How long will an orchard live for? Generally, people keep orchards for about 25 years. And you have to think in that 25 years, how much carbon those trees have pulled out of the environment and is in the woody biomass there. And so just that idea of putting that back into the soil is just a huge carbon sequestering event. And so taking on board all these different things that you're doing, how much water have you been able to, to save? I would say across the board, I have definitely cut back on my water consumption easily 20%. However, this last year, because I redesigned a 20-acre block on the my home orchard that I live on of my water supply that I use, which was cut because of the drought, I actually only used 60% of my water supply because I monitored it so closely and you know used all these strategies. And so what about the future then? I mean, do you have any other plans that you're hoping to implement to be even more efficient in your use of water? Well, one of the big directions that myself and most people are looking for in California is going into groundwater recharge, recharging the aquifers below us. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can do it. I mean, we could build recharge basins where we take in excess water at certain times of the year or storm water and that filtrates down through the ground into the aquifer. I mean, we can also do that in our orchards during the winter as well, because really the orchards in the Central Valley themselves 
can be used as a recharge basin. And this is what they kind of um, consider groundwater banking, and which is a little bit more organized when you actually have like a huge sort of pond area and you bring water into it with the express purpose of it going down into the ground and recharging the aquifer so that in times of need, like in drought, you can go to that water bank and pull that out and know that it's there without actually um, depleting the aquifer. So it's like, you know, a bank, you put water in and then you take water out and you keep it, you have to keep it balanced. <laughs> Another thing I talked to my cousin, who's a hydrologist, like, can you reverse engineer a well? Because we do have two wells on our property. Is it possible to take excess water and instead use those wells for putting water back down into the ground? In order to do that, though, you definitely have, just like the water bank, you have to have a means of accounting for how much you're putting in so that later on when you take it out, you know, again, you don't deplete the aquifer. Something like that, is that is that a huge investment for a farm of your size to, to do? Anything like that <laughs> is a huge investment because let me tell you, doing the right thing is never cheap. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure. Listen, uh, Christine uh, Gempele, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. David, two really fascinating interviews there. W what did you think to what Scott and Christine had to say? <laughs> I was blown away, absolutely blown away. They had, uh, you know, an understanding that, yes, uh, both uh, sectors, almonds and rice, are doing a lot in water conservation and uh, making better use of the water resources. But to, to hear both Scott and Christine talk about almost the mathematical approach they have to take, I was really struck by Scott's explanation of, of using levees, trying to get the ground elevation in the right level, and particularly using drones. I mean, I just, I just thought that was an amazing piece of information. I had no idea about it. And with Christine talking about almost regarding her water, uh, groundwater recharging, almost like a bank, putting money in, taking money out, in this case, putting water in and taking water out. Again, just fascinating. And I think this is the sort of thing that, you know, people just don't understand that uh, farmers are at the front end of production and they're going to look to every piece of equipment, technology, innovation that they can to be able to produce better. And that includes better use of technologies to uh, conserve their water and make it uh, as efficient as possible. I mean, I'm, I'm also fascinated just and it's, it's a little bit off these two particular crops but just last week, Brazil approved a genetically modified wheat, which is drought-resistant wheat. Now, it was a technical approval. It's not going to go into the flour mills in Brazil anytime soon. But it is another indication of where technology is coming in to help meet the challenges of water availability. So we already have some drought-resistant corn varieties that are, have been genetically modified, that have been grown. And again, if we're going to meet feeding increasing population efficiently and safely, then we're going to have to look at these different technologies. 
That's great. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat to me, David. And thanks also again to my two guests, Scott Matthews and Christine Gampelay. Uh, if you want to find out more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please visit the website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us, uh, where you'll find plenty more information on all the topics we've discussed in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. But for now, from me, Russell Goldsmith, Thanks for listening and goodbye.